Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends. Here we are, creeping up on February. How has the core of your existence been treating you? Has it been resonating with the Universal Mastermind? Have you been doing the do do with your life purpose? Yeah, me neither. But I'm getting by. I don't know what it is about this time of year, but it just makes me want to sleep. <laughs> it's all good. I have the headphones in and I'm listening to some reggae and sipping a local IPA and dredging some creativity from the dregs of my old and atrophied brain for you, my friends, my running friends, my endurance sweethearts. Those of you new to our podcast, welcome to episode 4-304. Codec-wise, that's the fourth version or iteration or generation of the Run Run Live podcast over low so many years, and the 304th episode, which is kind of cool. And please know that you're among friends. We don't want your money. Well, you know, not all of it. And we don't want your reviews, and we don't want, we don't have any t-shirts to sell. And I have no interest in signing you up for a subscription or a coaching program. We just like to deconstruct why running and endurance sports has the ability to drive positive transformation in our lives and why this grand adventure fuels our humanity. That's all. So you're among friends. And never mind all that drivel I spew about zombies and yak farming and me being a hitman for the Irish Mafia. That's all just a little fun I'm having. It's just a smokescreen. Or is it? Anyway, here we are again, and I have a great show for you. Our interview today is with Susan Loken, who took up running at the age of 36 and within a few years made the Olympic trials and became a Masters Marathon champion. And we talked through how it has changed her and what lessons we can learn from deconstructing her success. It's a great chat. When I recorded this, I was still fighting my way out of a chest cold that I caught in the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on where you're from. And you can hear it in my voice. So apologies for that. It's not, I'm not uh, disinterested or tired. I'm sick while I'm talking to her. So I was battling through adversity to bring you this lovely athlete. Susan 
and I were introduced by a friend, a mutual friend of mine, from the Goon Squad Runners, one of my running clubs. That's the club with the motto, no whining, just running. And my friend's code name is Cougar, and Susan is her coach. And Cougar is one of the, the runners I respect locally for, for doing the work and pushing herself. And I know, like like me, she's been working through some injuries in the last couple of years, so we uh, we have a lot in common. In Section 1, the running tips section, I'm going to bring you a piece on treadmill step-up runs. Yes, which I've probably talked through before, but I thought it was timely with the weather pushing us inside to revisit. And in Section 2, I'm going to revisit another topic that we've discussed in the past, which is how to get out of a winter funk. So again, this may not be new information for you folks, but the timing is right, and I had to work through it again myself, so I figured I'd share the love. How's my running going? Fairly well. As you know, I'm training for Boston now, and you may also know I've got a heart problem that's constraining some of the ways and types of training that I've done in the past. Nothing life-threatening, just something to, to work with. And to net it out, I can't really do the tempo and speed work, and a lot of the effort-based heart rate training that I've done so successfully in the last half decade or so. Instead, I'm working on building a huge base, huge, at an aerobic level, and then building up my core strength as well. So what does this look like? Well, this is a build week for me, uh, meaning, you know, a, a heavy week for me. And I'll run three days out of during the week at uh, an hour and 45 minutes in zone two effort, conversational effort for me. And for me, that's like, you know, 12 miles a session. So that's a nice 36 plus mile volume before I even get to my Sunday long run. And Sunday, I'll do another 16 or so. And guess what, campers? That's 52 miles on a four-day week. Pretty good. Pretty good. On the other three days, I'm doing my core training or stretching. And I'm experimenting with some awesome new core protocols that I think are going to work out really well. And it's a totally different approach than I've done before and really intriguing. It's too early to make a call, but I'll let you know. And I'll, I'll talk through this new core protocol at some point. The challenge I've had this week is fitting an hour and 45 minutes of running into a weekday. Now, I prefer to run in the daylight this time of year, and and that's a big chunk of the workday, right? When you, 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 know, you have to change, you have to shower, all that stuff, you're looking at two, two and a half hours of, uh, of working out, and that's hard to squeeze in. So I've been able to pull it off through some shifty prioritizing, but it's a challenge. So the theory here is that I'll be able to build so much strength that I'll be able to bring my pace up for the big race, maybe. We'll see. But for now, I'm having fun with it. I was casting about for some company for my Sunday long run this week, and my buddy Ryan reminded me that this weekend is the Dairy 16 Miler. And I went to the website, and lo and behold, it hadn't sold out. It usually sells out because they only have 900 runners in it. So I signed up, and Derry is an awesome race with a stupid difficult course that brings the rookies to tears, and I've run it at least 10 times. Now, for those of you who have may have read my book of running stories to Midbacker's Lament, you'll recognize the references to the Derry road race. Uh, back in the day, we ran it in snowstorms and below zero Fahrenheit temperatures, and one year, we had a guy die 
in front of us. Right there. No kidding. Yeah. So if you like my voice, and by that I don't mean the digitized sound vibrations of my vocal cords, I mean the unique melody to my prose and the slightly odd way I turn a simile, go check out my books of running stories. You can get them on Amazon or as an ebook from my website, or you can find them lining the bird cages of the seedier parts of town. I even read them into audio, and you can find those on my website, runrunlib.com. And if you can't find them on my website or my website is broken, just shoot me an email and uh, we'll work it out. This is my gift to you, my voice set free. Like a rabid Tasmanian devil or maybe a zombie yak to terrorize your brain and make your runs that much more interesting. On with the show. What's up? What's eating you? What can we do to help? Let's talk about treadmill progression runs. When you move your workouts onto the treadmill, there are some advantages. In the winter, we sometimes have to move inside to avoid the bite of Mr. Winter. This may also be turned into an advantage, giving you more control over your workout by eliminating the variables and the weather and the topography. So here's a good progressive workout that you can use that is not too stressful, has a little gamesmanship to it, and it gives you a good goal and something to keep your mind off the fact that you are, in fact, running on the treadmill. So first, a couple of quick suggestions on preparation. You know, you want to bring a water bottle, and you want to bring a small sweat towel, so you can have that handy, and you don't and you don't have to dismount in the middle of your workout. I like to listen to music or podcast when I'm on the treadmill, but I hate with a capital H headphone wires, and especially if you're trying to run a harder workout where you're you know you're throwing your arms around, you're guaranteed to tangle a hand on the wire, and your phone will go shooting across the room. Uh, so I've recently found a solution to this with a pair of inexpensive, over-the-air, noise-canceling Bluetooth headphones from SoundBot, and the links in the show notes. They're less than 20 bucks, and the sound quality isn't super, and the microphone for taking phone calls is terrible, but they do the trick, and at 15 to 20 bucks, I'm not so concerned about sweating them to death, and the over-the-ear part helps to drown out the treadmill noise and the devil babble of any errant CNN TVs that I've been unable to disable. If I'm going to the gym to use the treadmill, especially this time of year, when you have all the New Year's resolutionaries, I'll try to go off-peak hours. So this is any time other than the standard morning before work, lunchtime, or immediately after work crowd. So there's nothing worse than not being able to find a treadmill or having people giving you dirty looks when you're, you know, you're on the treadmill too long. Another great thing about being at the gym when there's no one around is you can turn off all the stupid TVs. Blaring CNN, ESPN, Fox News, and Mexican soap operas. Serenity now! So next you have to remember that most gyms and treadmills are operating under the assumption that you're only going to do this thing for 20 to 30 minutes. And some gyms have actual rules that you can't stay on for more than, you know, X minutes at a time or have to reserve the treadmills in blocks of X minutes 
and that's another good reason to go off-peak. 95% of the time, the machines themselves in hotels and gyms, they're going to automatically end the workout at 60 minutes. So whether you want to stop or not, it's going to stop for you and put you into cool-down mode. So knowing this, if you have a workout longer than an hour, let's say an hour and 10-minute workout planned, do a 10-minute warm-up, then stop and reset the machine and get back on so it won't interrupt you at the end of your workout when you really need to concentrate. An excellent way to warm up for a treadmill run, or any gym workout actually, is to do five minutes of barefoot running. And I love this. You just set the treadmill at the slowest speed you can stand. And I mean the slowest. At least two minutes a mile slower than any of your training paces. And you jump on in your bare feet, or if, if your club allows it. If not, use a pair of thin tech socks. So you feel your feet hitting the treadmill belt. Really feel it. Focus on that perfect form and that fast turnover. Enjoy it. You'll feel like a kid when you, and, and you may even get dirty looks, which is fun. Hips forward, shoulders back, heads, head high. Quick, light feet. Land on the forefoot pad with your feet underneath you, your center of gravity, aligned with the base of your second toe, right? Right there. That's where you want to land. Hot feet, hot, quick feet. And once you have your barefoot form dialed in, focus on letting your feet relax and spread out and experiment with sort of grabbing the belt with your foot and your toes. Feel the belt. Love it. Enjoy it. If you do this a couple of times a week for five minutes, you'll be a better runner. And it's essentially a grounding and form drill combined with balance and strengthening to prevent injuries. And just remember to keep your barefoot pace super slow and easy. There shouldn't be any pounding. Your foot strike should be as light as a feather stroking a lover's face. And after this awesome warm-up, you can put your shoes back on and run your workout. A key thing to realize about gym treadmills and treadmills in general is that they're not actual running. They are a simulation of running. Some will feel too easy. Some will feel too hard. Some will feel just strange. Feel free to jump around to the different models and different treadmills, different machines, until you find one you like. But don't assume they're going to be an exact replacement for road running. That assumption will get you into trouble, and uh, that's setting bad expectations. And I know it's easier said than done, but don't worry so much about pace on the treadmill. It may be slower or faster or feel slower or faster than your regular outside running. Run by effort level or perceived effort level instead. I like to set the incline on the treadmill at 1 or at least 0.5%. I think this better simulates road running. It also cleans up your form by forcing a bit of a forward lean. You know, it is harder and will impact your effort and pace. But remember what I just said about pace. It's not that important. If you really want to get wrapped up in paces, each 1% of incline is estimated to be worth 10 to 20 seconds a mile in pace. But the zero set to make it equivalent to road, I believe, is a 1% incline. And that's just my opinion. Now, let's talk about a simple workout that you can do on the treadmill that is very worthwhile and engaging. And by the way, most gym treadmills have some capabilities to be programmed, so you may be able to automate these types of workouts so you never have to hit a button during the workout. I hardly ever use any of the pre preset programs like heart, heart rate or hills or any of that stuff. 
I just hit the quick start and choose the pace and incline I want and then change it as I go. This, this simple workout that I'm going to talk about now meshes well with the controls available on the machine. Most gym treadmills default to miles per hour or kilometers per hour on the display and can be set, increased and decreased, a tenth of a mile at a time or multiple tenths of a mile. So 0.1, right? So let's say you want to do a one-hour progression run. What pace do you start at? What pace do you end at? Well, take the second question first. What pace do you want to end at? So I would think you want to end your pace somewhere between your target marathon pace or your target race pace and, you know, maybe up to 30 seconds per mile faster than that. It depends on how much experience you have on the treadmill and how advanced you are in your training and how difficult the treadmill running feels for you compared to the regular road running. But let's say somewhere between your target race pace and 30 seconds faster than that would be a good end pace. And let's keep it simple for now and say that we're going to do a one-hour progression run and finish at our marathon pace. And let's pick a round number and say our marathon goal pace is an eight-minute mile, right? So we want to finish at an eight-minute mile. That's 7.5 miles per hour on the treadmill. The way this simple progression run works is you start at a speed, you pick a speed to start at, and then you add a tenth or 0.1 mile per hour every five minutes in such a way that the final five minutes of the run is at your marathon goal pace or 7.5 miles per hour, 8-minute miles. Got it? So, in this example, you would then have to start at 6.4 miles per hour and hit the increase speed button once every 5 minutes. So then your starting pace, the first 5 minutes, is a relatively slow 9 minutes and 23 seconds per mile. And the ending pace, the last 5 minutes, is 8 minutes per mile. See how that works? And what makes this cool is, pardon the metaphor, it's like being boiled alive. You start out super slow and comfortable, and you turn up the heat so slowly that you don't even realize the effort until you get there. And psychologically, the five-minute increases makes it into a game, and it gives you something to look forward to instead of just the boredom of the treadmill. So physiologically, this mirrors exactly what you want to do in a race. You want to start out slow and accelerate into race pace. So this is the basic framework of a treadmill progression run. You can tweak it any way you like to fit your purpose. You can change the increase cadence to be faster. For example, you know, every two minutes you're going to increase the pace or slower. Every 10 minutes you're going to increase the pace. And you can increase by more, right? You can say, I'm going to increase by two miles, 0.2 miles per hour instead of 0.1. You know, two tenths instead of one tenth. It's up to you. But that's the basics of a progression run on the treadmill. If you've got a hilly course coming up, you could increase the, the incline instead of the pace. Now, that's a very difficult workout. I've done that before for the uh, mountain races, training for mountain races. You can do it for longer or shorter than an hour or two. Just remember that most gym treadmills reset after 60 minutes and plan accordingly. So that's how to run a happy progression run on a treadmill. If you do it right, it should start to get difficult by the end of the workout. Every time you increase the pace, you'll have to focus on keeping your form clean 
and relaxing into the effort, which, by the way, is exactly what you need to do in a race. It may get mentally tough to hold that pace for the last few increases. But again, that is exactly how it is in a race. You need to be able to push through that discomfort and hold your form and your pace. What I like to do in the last five minutes, when I know I've got the workout in the bag, so to speak, is to close it out with some faster paces to to simulate kicking. And so I'll increase the pace into an anaerobic range, like my 10K or 5K pace, and have some fun with it. So you're all warmed up, you won't hurt yourself, and it gives you that confidence to be able to close a run hard. And my friends, that's how you use our friend, the treadmill, to get a great workout. Play around with the paces, the lengths, and the increases, and see what works for you. And now for today's featured interview. Susan. Yes. There we go. We're back. We're live, as they say. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Beautiful, sunny Arizona. 77 degrees. Yeah. Sitting out in the sunshine. <laughs> yeah, it's nice out there. I like Arizona. Yeah, I do, too. So, now, Susan, why don't you give us the, uh, you know, the 200 words or less on, on who you are and what you do and, and how you get to be where you are here with this whole crazy running thing. Okay, 200 words or less. Let's see. Well, I started at about age 36 in my mid-30s after having my third son. Um, had moved to Arizona from Seattle and um, was the first time I was a stay-home mom, so I was a little antsy. So my husband would get home from work, and I would go out walking. And walking turned to running. And next thing I knew, I had ran three miles. And so somebody had mentioned that I should try running a 5K. So I ran a 5K, came in fourth in my age group, and that inspired me. And so my first friends that I met here in Phoenix were runners. So they said, hey, why don't you train for a marathon? I was like, whoa, what's a marathon? And they're like, ah, 26.2 miles. I'm like, sure, why not? Ignorance is bliss, right? (laughs) Right. And so I trained with the girls and um, ran the San Francisco Marathon at 36, right after my son was born, about a year after he was born, and finished in about four hours. And when I crossed the finish line, it completely and totally changed my life because it taught me that I could do anything. It taught me that if I trained and worked hard, I could run 26.2 miles. What couldn't I accomplish? And so based on yeah, that, I know, self-belief, you know, let, yeah. let, me st- let me stop you there and ask for a little color because you and I talked about this a little bit. It just blows me away, the ability of the marathon specifically transform people's lives mentally and physically. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you see people who will go out and they'll run a, you know, they'll do the marathon as a bucket list item and they'll do it once and then they'll walk away and go back to their old lifestyle. But for some of us, it changes our lives. We become different people. You know, what, how does it do that? Why does it do that? You know, why wasn't it one and done for you? Because as soon as I finished, I couldn't believe what I had just accomplished. And then it wasn't really the four hours or really finishing the marathon. It was the journey. It was like, look, at I just spent 20 weeks training. I went from only running three miles to running 26 miles. And I think it's the friendships and the camaraderie and the other runners. Runners are inspirational people. And when I moved to Phoenix, I didn't have any friends because I was new to town and had been born and raised in Seattle. So the, the first friends that I had were runners. And runners are giving, humble, hardworking. And that lifestyle, for me anyway, was just addictive. I loved it. It felt good to, you know, feel good, be healthy, be fit. Um, As I was getting fitter and fitter, my confidence was growing and growing. So that's kind of what it was for me. I just really, really liked the lifestyle and the journey. 
more so than even yeah. finishing the marathon. Yeah, and psychologically, it's almost like when you do that 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 marathon and you look at who you were and you get it's such a disconnect from what your personal image was before to what it is now. It kind of breaks your frame, right? It sort of shatters your whole frame of reference, so everything else becomes possible, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, when I was in high school, I skipped gym class. I didn't like to get my hair sweaty. You know, when they would pick teams for dodgeball or whatever, I was always the last person, you know, picked. So my high school friends are like, you ran a marathon? You went to Olympic trials? Who are you? Yeah, so, and yeah, so it, that's it, the... Yeah, so that's the uncommon part of this story is not only did you do this thing and change your life, is that now you're the, uh, you've had all the success at the master's level in the marathon. Right. Well, yeah, because I was already a master by the time I really started taking it seriously. You went to the, uh, the Olympic trials. You were a U.S. master's uh, marathon champion. Yeah, yeah. After, so after my first marathon with the new self-belief, I qualified for Boston in my second marathon. Then I ran Boston. And then after the Boston Marathon, uh, I was like, I think I ran a 305, and somebody said, why don't you try qualifying for Olympic trials? And once again, I was like, what are the Olympic trials? <laughs> and, you know, they at that time, I believe it was, because that was 2004, you had to run a sub-248. And so I hired a coach and worked my behind off, and I ran a 244 and qualified for the 2004 Olympic trials. And it was amazing, an absolute amazing experience. And I loved okay. it so much, I did it two more times. <laughs> yep. And you've you've won the Masters Division at New York, right? Um, it wasn't a New York marathon. I won, I won the Moore Marathon, which was um, women's only over 40 in New York City three times. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. So it's, it's funny because I've been a runner my whole life. You know, I ran cross country in high school and all that. So... It's funny when you see people enter the sport later in life, even much later in life, and be very successful, and you think, well, what if I hadn't put all those miles on my legs in the first 40 years? You know, well, should I have done better sort of thing? Um, do, mm-hmm. do you get any of that sort of attitude for people? Um, like, who's, you know, who's actually, this person just showing up? Yeah. Well, I kind of got more of the opposite. People would always ask me, can you imagine what you could have done in high school or what you would have ran in college? Um, yeah. Do you ever think about that? And my answer is no, because my journey started at 40, and I wouldn't change the runner, or I wouldn't change the experiences or the runner that I am for anything. So I just experienced in my 40s what maybe a lot of people experience in their 20s and 30s. So when you're when you're an older runner, and I you know I say that sort of tongue in cheek because every time I change age groups, I think the the last age group was the younger runner, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, you have to sort of have injury strategies and volume strategies to to get to the starting line because you can't train the kind of volume and and intensity. You know, you you can't do stupid stuff like you used to do, Um, even Mm -hmm. in your 30s, you know, 40s to 30s, 40s, and now 50s. You know, you can't do that stuff anymore. What are some of your uh, strategies for for staying healthy and getting to the starting line? Well, um, I can't even express how important what you just said is because now that I'm in my 50s, I have to concentrate just as much on prehab as I do training. If I have one day and time is short and I can only fit one thing in, it's going to be my strength training and my physical therapy exercises to keep my glutes, you know, strengthened and my hamstrings strengthened, everything in balance so I can get to the starting line injury-free. I'd rather be under-trained and healthy 
than fully trained with a little bit of, you know, tweakiness because that's no fun. And I find it, especially, I'll have to say probably from 48 to now, I'm 51 now, I really have to concentrate on it. Almost have to have a training plan for that. But it's worth it because then you get to the starting line and you are healthy and it's amazing what you can accomplish even in your 40s and 50s or late 40s and 50s. Yeah, I'm with you there. You have to start replacing volume and intensity days with other stuff. You know, you, exactly. You, you shift the mix of your tool set to get to the uh, the starting line because you and I are about the same age. So okay. I've noticed that recently as well. And you, and you really yeah. have to stay on top of it. You have to keep your radar active because mm-hmm. you can feel the stuff coming, and that's where you can't be stupid. <laughs> exactly. Well, I do my physical therapy exercises every week whether I'm injured or not, because the only way, and then if I even go a week or two without it, I feel a difference. I don't feel as strong, and I start to feel unbalanced. So it is super important. Now, the other thing that happens as you get older, and again, I'm saying that from my point of view, is you have to start to deal with uh, slowing down, right? And and Correct. doing a little bit less and just not being able to meet the things you used to do. What no, you know, No matter how fast you were in your 30s, you're going to be slower in your 50s, part of it is dealing with it, but part of it is planning for it as well. You know, so if you had an athlete in your, that you're coaching that's making that transition, you know, what are the kind of top three things that you counsel them to look for or to prepare for, you know, to get ahead of that curve and do it successfully? Because it's not smart to just train until you fail and then figure out what to do next, right? Correct, correct. Well, I think my number one thing would be set realistic goals. You never want to look backwards. You want to look where you are today. For instance, when I turned 50, I had all brand new goals. So I figure everything I run is a new PR in my 50s. I'm not comparing it to when I was, you know, 42 and 44. So set realistic goals that are, you know, right within reach, but a little out of reach, so they're hard. And also plan in like we just talked about. You want to plan in your strength training. You want to plan in your physical therapy, your massage therapy, so you're strong enough to train hard enough to reach your goals. Right. So putting those strategies in place as you as you transition into the higher age groups is important. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I'll put in the um, – I actually coach a lot of athletes that are in their 40s and 50s, and I'll put in their, you know, training plan, you know, their strength training days, maybe not their massage therapy days, but they know we'll be talking and – So, you know, make sure you get, if you can, get weekly massages or every couple weeks at least, you know, so you can get those knots out and get everything worked out before it becomes an issue. Right. And uh, the massages, I've always said, are good as to find out if there's something wrong. So they can reach in there with their fingers and they can find stuff that you didn't know was going on. So you can, you know, you can change your approach or change your training. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Also, we pay a lot of attention to sleep. Because, you know, what is the number one performance enhancer? Sleep. And everybody seems to forget that. And as we're in, I don't know about everybody else, but I feel like the older I get, the busier I get. And um, I thought once my kids were raised and they're almost raised, I only have one left at home. But I still don't have that much time because I think I keep taking on more. So sleep becomes super important. So scheduling that in, actually setting a bedtime so you can get your eight hours of sleep, it's amazing how much better you can perform when you sleep, you know, get enough or adequate sleep. Yeah, and that's that's a real struggle. That's a real struggle. I really envy people who only need five or six hours of sleep a night uh, when they're right. training because I, yeah. I need much more. A big part of your approach is, is belief, 
right? It's it's believe, mm-hmm. train, become. Yeah, believe in yourself, train to succeed, become your dream. Right, and I think that's real important with with your age group of females because you know mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of runners in our age group in high school. You know, it, it uh-huh. wasn't it wasn't a big uh, demographic. So you have a lot of people coming in late, like yourself, who really don't have any expectations or don't know how to train or don't believe in themselves or know how good they could be, right? So you Correct. have to help yep. them get there. Yeah, and so that's so what's really fun. I mean, I love it when people in their 40s or 50s, and as a matter of fact, there's one guy I'm just training. He came to me two years ago and never had ran before, and he's 56. He's running 144 half marathons, and we're still he's still reaching PRs. It's so fun to watch his progression. Yeah, and and I think I like your approach, you know, the 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 friend we have in common there, Kelly, uh I've run with her a lot and she you know, she's an animal, right? I know how much oh, she yeah. trains and how mm-hmm. fast she is with mm-hmm. her lifestyle, you know, with the kids and, and everything. It's just really impressive. Um correct. And so I so I like your approach which is the the training part, right? It's easy to say believe in yourself. It's easy to say, you know, you can do it. But there's a step in there that says, yeah, but then you got to take some fairly difficult actions <laughs> to bridge the gap to your goal, right? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of the kind of touchy-feely, feel-good training programs that exist now, especially targeted at women, you know, they miss that step. They're more like, you know, do what you can do, love yourself. But, I, you know, I think if you really want to meet some goals, you've got to still do the work. And you shouldn't be oh, afraid absolutely. of that. That's the fun part. Right, right. exactly. Yeah, so how do you work through that with your athletes? Well, we ease them into it for sure. It's very systematic. So we'll start slow, kind of see where their fitness is. We'll start them at their particular fitness level, and then they'll have their goal, and then we slowly add on workouts and teach them how to do each workout. And I think success breeds success. So once they have a success and say maybe four times 400, then they're like, oh, okay, I can do that. Then they kind of start to understand the idea of, speed intervals, and then we'll add on a few more 400s, and then you'll build to 800s. So it's just kind of a building, you know, build your base, and then you can just keep building higher from there. Slow baby steps to the bus, I always say. Right, making progress, and and then it it has momentum of its own. Exactly. Win the day. That's what I try to tell everybody. Just win the day, one day at a time. Don't worry about – you have your goal, and obviously that's what we're working towards, but you want to progress one day at a time and accept – setbacks, except, I mean, we all have busy lives, children and jobs and responsibility and understand that it's not always going to go perfectly. It doesn't for anybody. Um, And I think if you can help them accept that and move forward when something happens, that's pretty encouraging too. One of the big learnings for me over my lifetime of training was that it's never a straight line (laughs) and it's always sort of a a long, you know, it's, it's a long horizon. It's a year's horizon, not a weeks or days horizon that you should be looking at. And so how do you counsel people through that? You know what I mean, right? It's not a straight line. Straight. Oh, it's never, I have yet to have a straight line. (laughs) So I think that's an advantage that I have is my experience because I've been at it now for what, almost 15 years and I've had tons of success, but I've also had tons of failures or I guess not failures. I've had a lot of lessons learned. So by example, I can show them this is possible you know, and they'll say, oh, I missed a week because I was sick or the kids are, I'm like, well, that's happened to me before also, but don't you worry. We can get back on the horse and, you know, continue from here and you can still get to your destination or you can still get to your goal. So I really will draw on my experience a lot and help them understand that they can still be successful 
because I was a mom of three kids, a single mom of three young children when I was really kind of at my peak in my mid-40s and um, have always worked. And it is possible. You must have felt like uh, Goldilocks there at the Olympic trials. Must have, must have been surreal for you. Yeah, the first one was kind of interesting because I, I kind of went into the crowd. I almost kind of snuck in the back. I really didn't feel like I belonged because I was so new to running and I didn't really understand the magnitude of what I had done. And so I just, I felt lucky. I felt very lucky and I felt like I didn't, it was weird. I felt like I hadn't proven myself. And so I just, you know, just kind of ran the race and I did very well. And I don't think it was until probably my sixth or probably about my fifth or sixth year of really seriously running where I was like, oh, okay, I am an elite marathoner. I am a runner. It took me a while to really, you know, feel like that in my mind. And did that change the way you executed? You know, it. I guess it did a little bit because I because I would get up in the front of the start line and feel like, you know, I don't care who was next to me. Maybe it was Paula Radcliffe, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it my best today and I have just as much of a shot as you do or you do. And I didn't feel like that at the beginning. So it did take me a while to get that level of confidence. Yeah, it's interesting because the one of the another one of the common denominators of folks that I talk to is everybody has a bit of the imposter syndrome, no matter who they are, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Even even Paula Radcliffe might have some of that, right? Exactly. Um, yep. And and I'm sure you see some of that with the folks that you work with as well, where you have to talk them talk them through it. It's okay for you to be, uh, you know, for you to be qualifying for Boston. You're you're worthy. Exactly. Yep. Or they've ran a marathon, but they still don't think, you know, I guess I did the same thing. They still don't think they're a, quote, runner. And you're like, uh, yeah, you're a runner. Look in the mirror. Look at what you've accomplished. You are truly a runner. And I think really helping them keep the comparison within, because, you know, sometimes runners or maybe people in general tend to compare themselves to other people and their success or their self-worth. And you really just need to keep the comparison within. Compare yourself to how you are today and how you were yesterday and just little improvements. You just want to be better tomorrow than you are today. So yeah, I think when you're a coach, you're kind of a life coach and you're a training coach. You're a little bit of both. Maybe more so yeah, a life you almost, coach. Yeah, you almost have to be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why I love it so much because I love that part of it. Help, helping people get through their, their mm-hmm. mental knotholes. Exactly. And realizing that it's 90% of doing anything is believing that you can. And it's fun, to, like kind of what you talked about at the very beginning, it's fun to watch that transformation to where they're insecure or they doubt themselves to where all of a sudden they're like, aha, I can do this. I can do anything I put my mind to. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be part of that journey with other people. And then it goes on to transform other areas of their lives, which is uh, it's very complimentary. Exactly, exactly. definitely has that trickle effect. I was looking on your website, and you're a fairly slender lady. What do you what do you do for in terms of nutrition? Any particular style or um, around that? Yes, actually, I uh, love food, and I love very nutritious food. So we try to eat as healthy as possible. I'm not going to ever say that I'm perfect at all, but I really stick to real food. As much fruits, vegetables, lean meats, um, very uncomplicated. You know, nothing boxed, nothing processed as possible. So I'd say 90% of my eating is super healthy. I try to get, you know, the right amount of macronutrients, carbs, proteins, fats in my diet and make sure I recover afterwards. So I do concentrate on my diet a lot, um, not only to stay slender because it's easier to run that way, but I just feel better that way. Yeah. And if you're eating the right stuff, you can't overeat when you're training. There's just no way. Exactly. Exactly. And I think after running so long, I've kind of found that sweet spot in my weight that I 
can maintain and still eat and have my indulgences once in a while also. Yeah, if I get off track, kind of like what I tell the people that I coach, just do Fitness Pal, like one of those apps where you can log your food for two weeks. Pretty eye-opening experience. Because <laughs> if you log your food, it's amazing how the calories add up or the sugar adds up or you're not eating enough carbs. So that's kind of a way if people are getting off track or if I'm personally getting off track, I'll just log my food for a week or so and gets me right back on track. Yep, observation and measurement are always uh, guaranteed to influence behavior when it comes to yes. diet and nutrition. It's absolutely, absolutely. It's e- easier to hide when you haven't taken a picture of yourself uh, in the mirror there. See, <laughs> so, so now you set up a coaching practice and you're and you're you're giving back, so to speak, trying to help others of your ilk be successful. Exactly. Yep. Well, actually, all through starting, I guess in my early 40s, I worked for a charity called Chances for Children, and we did marathon fundraising marathon training groups. So I did that for seven years, and that was absolutely fantastic and phenomenal. And then after the 2012 Olympic trials, I decided to retire, quote, retire, and start my own company, Believe Train Becomes, because I wanted to, rather than have these big, huge groups, I wanted to individually coach so I could, you know, help them from the ground level up one at a time. And so I started that three years ago. Yeah, I still have my goals that I'm reaching and running, but I'm trying to balance both. So what's the profile of the athlete that you're looking to train? Uh, you know what? I have everything from beginner walkers all the way up to a uh, gal trying to qualify for Olympic trials, Boston qualifiers, four-hour marathoners, five and a half. It's all over the board. There really isn't any norm. I guess my, and then I guess my norm used to be kind of the older runner because People know that I didn't start till my mid-30s and in my 40s. However, I coach a few in their 20s also, so it's pretty broad. It's pretty broad. So I'll, I'll start moving you towards the exit here so you can get back to doing your good works. What are the you know the top three things that you've learned from, from this whole transformation over the last 15 years? The top three things that I've learned, that's a great question. Off the top of my head, number one thing would be it is about the journey. I know that's cliche but it's really about each and every single day and who you become because of it. Uh, the destination, of course, that's fun when you win, but even if you don't, if you don't enjoy every day and if you don't enjoy the process, it's not going to be fun. So enjoy the journey. Uh, I guess, obviously, what we talked about earlier, believe in yourself. You know, if you don't believe in yourself and if you don't have self-belief, you're really not going to meet your goals because you're going to find a way or an excuse not to. I guess that would be number two. Number three would be you get just as much out of helping other people succeed as you do yourself, um, if not more. I would actually say more. And the fun thing is it's such a trickle effect or it's such a domino effect. When you help one person or you inspire one person to change and they inspire another person, I think the biggest compliment or the biggest heartwarming statement that was ever made to me was not too long ago by a gal that I had coached. And she came up to me and she's like, you know what, Susan? She says, as much as you inspired me and changed my life and running is now who I am, or not who I am, but is a lot of what I do, I inspire other people. She's a school teacher. I'm inspiring the other school teachers to get in shape. I'm inspiring the kids. And right. there isn't anything more rewarding than that. Right. And and part of that is just from your actions with yourself, right? So you're creating those those ripples in the in the pond that are affecting exactly. other people just through your own actions. And I... I I like people to think about that because you don't have to do big things. You don't have to start a foundation. You can just do the right thing with your own life, and, and that'll that'll make ripples that'll help other people. 
Exactly, exactly. And it's fun to see that ripple. It just doesn't end. Yeah, like I was saying uh, not too long ago, right? Even if all you can bring to the table is a smile and a hug, please do so because I don't get enough of those. I love it. That's great. I might have to borrow that statement. Feel free. That's so. Um, what's the uh, what's the website? What are the the links where people can find you? Uh, www.believetrainbecome.com. I'm dot com. Believetrainbecome.com. Right. That is the best. All right. Believe train become. I'm writing that down. All right. All right. Okay. Thank you for your time today, and uh, hopefully you still get your run in today. Oh, absolutely, and I appreciate your time. And did I hear you're going to be in Boston again this year? Yeah, I, I took a charity bib because I'm still struggling. I got some, uh, I got some issues, but uh, I'm taking the long view. <laughs> oh, okay, I love it. Well, I'll be in Boston again, so uh, maybe we can meet in person. Yeah, I think you'll be up at one of those uh, front corrals, though. Uh, that's the idea. I'm hoping to. I have a goal. I didn't quite meet my goal last year, so I'm going after it this year. I'll, I'll be 20,000-something people behind you, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to run for uh, Dick Hoyt this year. Um, oh, nice. Great you know charity. The boys, right? Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So Dick, last year, it was Dick, fun last year because yeah. I watched him finish. Yeah, so Dick's not pushing Ricky this year. He's got some other uh, person that I'm hoping to get a hold of for an uh, interview pushing Ricky this year. But, uh, yeah, that'll oh, be nice. fun. Oh, very in good. The old days, so, in the old days, I always used to know I was doing really well if I passed Dick and Rick. Oh. I knew I was, <laughs> I, was, I was way ahead of my time if I passed them, right? Because they started out front, and till very recently, Dick would push Ricky to a 3.10, 3.15 marathon, right? That's thought. Crazy. All right. Yeah. Okay, so well... I will um, let you go, my friend. Okay, well, nice chatting with you, and I'll talk to you another time. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. I define my life by what graces I have and the gifts I've been given, not by the scarcity of what I have not. Getting out of a winter funk, part two. Getting winter funky. Funky. This is a topic that comes up every year in January, February, and March. And this is when up here in the northern hemisphere it's dark and cold and joyless, if we let it be. And we tend to get the blues and we fall into what has become known as the winter funk. And I googled this topic and I found that I had actually written a very good post on this topic in March of 2013. So there's a link to that too here. Let's revisit the topic again and see if we can come up with any new useful directions. First of all, what are are the symptoms of this winter funk, and and what really is it? And we've all probably heard the phrase seasonal affective disorder, or sad, so sad. This is the label that has been given to this well-known, often talked about phenomenon of getting into a funk during specific time of year, and winter is typically that time. And the common symptoms are, you know, they read like a case of mild depression, Feelings of anxiety, depression, hopelessness, and difficulty concentrating. Energy loss, physical sluggishness, oversleeping, social withdrawal, and, and, and loss of interest in activities. Appetite fluctuations and comfort eating and weight gain. Yep, that's all the stuff that happens. And there are some real physiological evidence for this funk. 
So you have various hormones and other physical influencers that fluctuate during this time of year, and we feel it. And the symptoms are, are quite real. They're not in your head. Now, as endurance athletes, we have an advantage and a disadvantage here. Our advantage is that we're in tune with our bodies and are typically already fairly active and healthy, and we are starting in a better place to begin with. Our disadvantage is that we're so committed to our training that sometimes becomes another source of stress when we start to get this into these funks. And I feel some of these common symptoms in my seasonal mood swings. And the big, big three ones for me are sleeping, eating, and not wanting to work out. So let's start through these. Now, oversleeping is very noticeable for me this time of year. I'm usually a guy who gets up, you know, at 5 a.m., starts the day on an aggressive, positive note. In the dark days of winter, I want to sleep. I mean, I can sleep for 10 hours and want to sleep some more. And the problem with all this sleeping is it doesn't really help. It makes your funk worse. It must be some sort of mammalian hibernation thing. But when you sleep more, you don't feel refreshed. You just feel groggy. The experts say that the best way to counteract the oversleeping problem is just to get up earlier. That sounds super simple, but in practice, how do you keep your funky self from hitting the snooze button and staying in that warm bed? Well, a few tactics you can use are, uh, first, as simple as it sounds, you can put your alarm clock on the other side of the room or even in a different room, so at least you have to get out of bed when it goes off. Uh, second, you can try to get to bed on time, so you get that full eight hours or whatever you think the number should be. Uh, for example, if you're trying to get up at five, then you got to be in bed by nine, right? And third, have a big glass of water ready and drink that as soon as you get out of bed. This really makes a difference in helping you wake up and starting to rehydrate your body. Uh, some people put a dash of vinegar in that water to counter the uh, acidity in your body. Fourth, create a routine before bed at night where you set yourself up for being successful in the morning. And this could be a simple, short self-talk or positive visualization before you lay your head down or just preparing to start the next day and thinking about why you really want to get up and, and you're going to get up and get at it. And finally, create a morning routine so that once you're up, you're doing something useful and rewarding like meditation or writing, etc., for m more ideas on this, I would refer you to our friend Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning book that we talked about a few episodes ago. He's got some good ideas in that. The other big thing for me is eating. You know, I tend to want to eat a lot of comfort food in the dark months, and I'm outside less. So if I'm inside, I'm close to the food. And for me, that's fatty stuff and carbohydrates, you know, pot roast and potato chips and, and that kind of stuff. Counting calories just makes it worse. Once I start thinking about food, I want more food. So counting calories makes me eat more. <laughs> and the experts seem to have the same advice as they always have in this case. When I when I looked at it, they say, well, eat less fatty foods, eat less empty calorie white foods like pasta, bread, and white rice. And they say, try to get more protein, enough protein, beans, lentils, nuts, eggs, you know, eat whole foods. And that all sounds a bit too familiar to me, and I sense that there's no science behind that advice, and it's just, uh, it's not really specific to a seasonal funk. It's just good eating advice. So instead of the same old eat healthy platitudes, what could be some discrete actions we could take to counter the winter comfort eating? 
Well, one thing I think is true is that in the winter we tend to be dehydrated. So you're going to want to make sure you get more water, and that's a good thing. Another discrete action I think helps, especially when you're in a funk, is some proactive meal planning and creation. Schedule an hour on Friday or Saturday or Sunday or whenever to create at least a partial meal plan for the week and then go get those groceries and schedule another hour at some point to prepare and make some meals. When you get into a funk, your decision-making muscles get weak. You're more likely to reach for the fudge brownies because making that salad is just so much work. By preparing as many healthy meals ahead of time as you can, you reduce the number of decisions you have to make. You'll have more resilience against this binging or comfort eating. This simplifies your life, gives you power. But you have to actually schedule the planning, shopping, and prep in your calendar so you don't sit down on the couch and sleep through it. The last thing that I certainly struggle with is getting out to do my workouts, especially when it's this cold out and the roads are bad and it's just awful. The deep, dark depths of winter. I just don't have as much mental energy. I feel sluggish. And the good news is that one of the primary defenses against seasonal affective disorder is exercise. And anything you can manage is a win. And many of us will retreat inside to the treadmill of the gym in the winter to avoid that giant pain in the ass of putting on 400 layers of clothes and struggling through snowbanks. That's fine. I will do many of my proscriptive runs on the treadmill because it's just too hard to control the variables outside. It's still important to get outside, though. Fresh air and sun are very good for counteracting that sluggishness. Even if you're not going to do your main workout outside, still find a way to get outside, preferably during the day, even if it's dark. Just get out and walk the dog. Go for a 20-minute hike. It's going to wake you up and refresh you. So those are the three main challenges that I get in a winter slump and how I try to deal with them. And at the end of the day, it's a battle. And you just have to keep fighting, keep moving forward, and not be so hard on yourself. So to close out this article, I'm going to give you some extra fun things that people do that I found while I was looking around to combat these winter blues. And I really like this one, the first one. It's buy some fresh flowers. And I read this today and I thought to myself, what a great idea. Bringing home a nice big spring bouquet for your cave will certainly change that atmosphere, not only for you, but for everybody in the house. Light a scented candle. Again, change that atmosphere. Eat summer foods. Open up the cookbook to the summer section. You may be limited in what you can procure, but make some of those summer recipes and it, it just might change your attitude. In one post I read suggested that winter is a great time for reading. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it's worth a try. Probably better than chocolate cake and Law and Order reruns. Several of the posts suggest organizing a room or cleaning a space. This will freshen up part of your environment and put you mentally in control. And this might mean working through that inside home fix-it list. Anything like that it can be very empowering. And that's what I have for you, so go give it a try and let us know what works for you. I've got a postscript here. After penning this piece, I went home, and instead of just eating and sitting on the couch, I did an hour of meal prep. I actually did what I wrote here. I made a big bowl of salad, I made a big batch of homemade balsamic vinaigrette, and I made a big blender full of almond milk smoothie. 
and I found this process indeed to be very empowering and was able to take a nice salad with healthy dressing to work with me for a couple of days without having to think about it or do any work. I also went to bed early after reading a bit and set the alarm clock to get up early. I rose when the alarm clock went off. I did some meditation, some light affirmations. I read a couple pages from When Things Fall Apart by Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron. Not by plan, just because it happened to be one of the books lying around on my desk. I was more at peace than I had been in weeks. And I spontaneously wrote a post about not getting wrapped up and worrying about the future path, but taking time to listen and hear the lessons that the current moment is trying to teach you. I have been at peace and settled in my mind since then, simply by this morning routine. I have been kind to my family. I have been effective and efficient in my work. It is the simple things that can change your outlooks. It's the simple things that can pull you from your funk. Cheers. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. Hey, hey, hey. Episode 4-304 has drawn to a close. You know, the best thing about this whole podcasty running community thing is the cool people I get to talk to and hang out with. That's the cool part. You guys are the cool part. And I meet new people every week, and it's pretty cool. I'll give you a couple of stories from our funky online running community from this week. So I'm on Facebook. I was in the office this week. I wasn't traveling. So I had Facebook open. Uh, Chris Russell on Facebook. I think CYKT Russell will get you there as well. And I have a Run Run Live group as as well. But I guess Facebook must recommend me as a friend to other runners because I get these friend requests. You know, like everybody does. And usually I don't just accept them. I click through to make sure they're real people and not robots or spammers. And you can tell by the number of friends we have in common and if their profile picture is them smiling with a bib number pinned to their chest, you know, they're in, man, they're in. If their profile picture is them grinding up the side of a mountain mountain path, yep, they're in. So this week I had a lady send me a friend request, and I clicked through, and there are those familiar pictures of a mature athletic woman in her running stuff. But the next series of pictures from her Instagram had me baffled. I'm thinking, what is that? A baby squirrel? And clicking on them, I soon realized that these were pictures of a more detailed anatomical nature. I mean, I have nothing against you sharing liberally, but I, I'm sorry, I couldn't friend you. I was having these visions of our relationship ending with me being held for ransom by the Russian mafia, and I decided to head that off at the pass. But today I was working. And a friend request came through, and I looked at this young lady's profile, and it seemed kosher, so I accepted it. And don't worry, this story has nothing to do with baby squirrels. And a few minutes later, I get a message, always good to meet a fellow runner. And I figure, I'll play nice and respond. I said, nice to meet you too. What are you training for? And she says, I've run three 5Ks, and I'm planning on a 10K. And goes on to tell me how she's just started and still has to run walk. And I tell her it's the best part of running and to hang in there. You know, being a new runner, that's that's great. You're starting out on the adventure. And she asked me how long I've been running. And I say, well, you know, a few years. And then I send a picture of my metal rack and my marathon quilt and tell her about the 
podcast. So, so welcome to my world, Chrissy. Nice to have you on our adventure. So I know I've been saying this for months, but honestly, my new book that I wrote on how to qualify for the Boston Marathon in 14 weeks while holding down a full-time job and a family is done and edited, and I'm pulling the website together, and I really like this one. It's not so much a how-to. I mean, it is a how-to, but it's also my manifesto on racing and training for the Boston Marathon. I did not choose to write it. It chose to be written, but I do really like it and have patience. I'll get it up in the next couple of weeks. Finally, I need your help. And by help, I mean money for my Team Hoyt campaign for Boston. And I remember the first time I met Rick and Dick Hoyt. It was some some generic 10K or 5-miler somewhere back in the 90s. And I remember passing them in the race. And later, when I was talking to Dick at a race expo, I related that story to him. And without missing a beat, he said, yeah, I remember that race. I had a chest cold, or you never would have caught us. <laughs> so, And that's the thing I really like about Dick and Rick, is that they didn't set out to change the world. They set out to run, like we all do. And they did what they could do. They ran. And they weren't doing it to put on a big show or to call attention to anything. They were part of the community up here, and they put in the work. I mean, they qualified for Boston under the original 250 standard, two hours and 50 minutes, years ago. And the BA wouldn't let them run the race. But they kept showing up, and they kept doing the work, and they kept doing that thing that runners do, that we do as runners. They ran. And this humble man with his son and this simple thing, they eventually changed the world. And I'd like... Your help to keep Rick and Dick's legacy going, and I'd like your help to propagate their ripples in our pond, and this is this is good in our world that we can help with. So please go to my uh, CrowdRise page, which is going to be uh, www.crowdrise.com forward slash Team Hoyt Boston 2015, all one word, forward slash fundraiser, forward slash Christopher Russell, and help sustain this good in the world. 20 bucks, folks. I know there's a few of you out there. Give me 20 bucks. That's a way you can make ripples in our pond. And that, my friends, is how leadership works. It's like radiation. You radiate as an individual and as a, as a leader. And what you radiate influences the people who come in contact with you. If you cultivate stress and negativity, well, that's what you radiate. And this is the pollution you'll propagate. But if you radiate positivity and leadership in your thoughts and actions, that will radiate out from you and change the world. So let's change the world. And while we're changing the world, I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.